0: Hello and welcome to another episode of IRI Growth Insights. I have the privilege of welcoming back my colleague, Jonna Parker, principal of IRI's Fresh Center of Excellence and special guest and great partner to IRI, Anna Marie Rohrink. Anna Marie is president of 210 Analytics, a research company that specializes in food retailing. Anna Marie is known for her work in meat, produce, deli, bakery, and candy. Just yesterday, Jana and Anna Marie hosted a webinar, Where's the Meat? Understand what consumers want in plant-based protein. And today we're gonna pick up on that conversation and dig in a little more into current lifestyles, why people are choosing or not choosing plant-based meat alternatives and what opportunities there are to win in this space. So Anna Marie, I'm gonna start with you because yesterday you mentioned that over the past 15 to 20 years, that small percentage of the population that identify as vegan or vegetarian really hasn't changed much. So we see a lot of buzz around plant-based meat alternatives. So what's driving that? Well, I think
1: uh, there is a big difference between exclusively eating a vegetarian and vegan diet. And every once in a while, eating a vegetarian or vegan meal. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from, um, both in the numbers as well as from the narrative that you hear out there a lot on the consumer media, especially um, where vegan is heralded as the new way of eating. We all eat vegetarian and vegan all the time. It is wildly popular, all sorts of language along those ways. I would absolutely argue that if you were to go 20 or 30 years ago, that fewer people on occasion would eat a vegan or vegetarian meal. But you are absolutely right, Joan, in that the number of people that exclusively eat vegan or vegetarian has remained the same right at around 5 to 7%. I've never seen it higher than 7%. Um, so there's, there is, I think, the big difference. And therein lies, too, the difference with plant-based meat alternatives, A lot of people believe that they are only consumed and bought by people who adhere to an exclusive vegan or vegetarian lifestyle, and the numbers absolutely don't show that. Correct, Donna?
2: Yeah, I think the number that I usually stick with is that I believe it was in a study we did with Power of Meat that you did, Anna Marie, where... Just under 60% of folks are looking for a plant-forward diet or plant-forward choices or more plant-forward choices, and that's very different than all the time eschewing meat, and I think that's what's changed, is the concept of balance and mixing meat with plants, the importance of a balanced diet, the importance of maybe scaling back but still enjoying meat is what is driving... This interest, but plant forward is different than meat alternative to consumers. In Anna Marie's study, that we actually asked as a separate box, how you know are you eating more meat alternatives? And there was a decent amount of people, but not as many as looking just to mix more plants in. And I think that's what we're seeing is a lot of times as marketers, we say to ourselves, "Oh, they're eating less meat. Let's give them something that looks like meat." And I think that's really intriguing to people. And obviously it's been intriguing enough to start to appear on menus as far ranging as Burger King and Disney world. Um, And obviously then that menu interest has brought retail interest and the products have really gotten interesting and high quality, excellent brand marketing out there with those products. But at the end of the day, the consumer is looking for variety diversity and plant forward, not always just, Hey, I was going to eat a beef burger and now I'm going to eat a beet burger.
0: Right. But you know, it's interesting because you're right. A lot of this is being driven through food service. You know, it just, just, and I would argue you could say that about fish. You could, you could say that about so many different things. People experience it in a restaurant and then maybe get the confidence or something to try it at home, but it's seen something in the store. You know, it's seen the different varieties in the store. Um, The restaurant might be the easiest, you know, gateway to it, but convenience is another element. Um, So let's talk about some of the different products and how manufacturers of these um, meat alternatives I'm I'm talking about specifically are working to make it easier for people to adopt these products. Anna Marie, how about we start with you?
1: Yeah, I'll hop in here first. You're absolutely right that in past years, we've always seen trends emerge in restaurants first, and then retail had about a one to two year leg, and we had a beautiful opportunity to see how it did in restaurants. And that was true in terms of new items, also flavors, um, things like bowls and sushi, all of that sort of started in restaurants and made their way into retail. Now, of course, the pandemic completely changed that cycle. And as is, the cycles had gotten a lot closer over the last few years because people are looking for variety. Um, So retail had to follow food service much, much quicker as is. But then uh, during the pandemic, of course, a lot of restaurants shut down. Um, and had limited menus. So what happened was, instead of a lot of innovation coming from restaurants, they tended to have limited menus with their favorite items only, so they could have limited inventory. And a lot of the innovation had to be discovered in retail. And I think that's actually part of the struggle for retail, because there are an incredible amount of new companies out there that are developing all sorts of different varieties made with different types of plant-based proteins, different types of formats, which is our word for cuts, if you will. And so now suddenly it's up to retail to figure out where do I put it in the store? How many items do I need to have? Uh, what kind of brands do I need to have? And they don't have Big Brother restaurants to help them with that all that much. Jana.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think one of the really interesting things about having this conversation, as we did yesterday, as we're doing today, and really looking at meat alternatives in the refrigerated meat space, that's the context with which we want to talk, because over the last five years, that's where a lot of the innovation and explosion went, and what was so interesting about 2020 is that, again, the life cycle started at restaurants. We started to see Impossible Beyond and some of the other brands hit with a fresh burger alternative or sausage alternative two or three years ago in restaurants. So 2020 was the year that then retail wanted to take it big based on that life cycle. COVID notwithstanding, what ended up happening by the fall in our data is that sales rates which had seen this triple digit growth because it started small and you can get triple digit growth easily, we started to see the rate of sales decline, or at least erode. Then we started to see a plateauing of the trial rate. And I think one of the most interesting things about the refrigerated meat space, to Anna Marie's point, is tremendous trial early on, but repeat was only at about half of all consumers who tried. And anyone who's listening out there from you know classic CPG background knows that you need to have at least 70% percent repeaters to really keep your brand on shelf, we were still seeing enough trial happening refrigerated meat alternatives, but not as much that kept up with the pace of item count. So we've actually seen over the last six months and refrigerated meat alternatives is an erosion of item count, average items carried per store. And I think it was a natural evolution because from the pandemic a little bit, but also just The amount of items coming out were not differentiated enough. The only thing that was happening at the average traditional grocery store was multiple brands of a burger, a sausage, and a grind. And honestly, this category isn't developed enough to warrant brand iteration. And then, oh, by the way, private labels started to come out. So you had at least a fourth player on most shelves. We don't even have four brands at this point in deli meat in most stores, (laughs) given the consolidation. So, I think there is tremendous room to continue. Do not, you know, mark my words. I said this yesterday too. There will always be a niche and a really intriguing market for refrigerated fresh meat alternatives, but we have to iterate on something other than brand. And whether that's, you know, I don't think we can rely on food service anymore as our trial point. I think we really need to look at it as what are people buying an animal protein today? What are the flavors they're eating and seasonings and meals? And that's where we can bring refrigerated meat alternatives as that swap out. I think that there's so much recipe, so many meal opportunities that we haven't even talked about yet, but what we don't need is the fifth or sixth brand of frankly gray looking sausage to hit the shelf.
0: Okay. So you're, you're giving me two questions here. And one is, um, is refrigerated like pretty much the, the gold mine for retailers or is it somewhere else? Is it frozen? And I ask about frozen because, Think about how we eat animal, like regular meat, you know, it's part of something. It might be with, with rice, with pasta, you know, with whatever it's, it's not necessarily just the standalone, which is, you know, I think part of your point that there have to be recipes involved. So Jana, where, where is the gold mine for, um, meat
2: alternatives? I think what's important, and we showed this yesterday, is there is an existing a legacy space, which is the frozen aisle. Since the, I mean, I'm going back, but I would say at least the 90s, maybe even the 80s, there have been plant-based items in the frozen aisle that are alternatives to center of plate protein. That is 30 plus years of a set, a dedicated set. And I think because it's a legacy set in Frozen, we've also seen innovation extend. There are now appetizers, There are multiple different types of animal replacements, whether it's chicken or turkey. But there's also now it's starting to also show frozen entrees having plant-based meat alternatives. A legacy life cycle means the innovation is getting a little bit broader out. Refrigerated is relatively new, but it's now entrenched. It's no longer emerging. It's a must-have, but we're moderating what's the size and assortment in that set. And then I'd say the third, and emerging space, which is almost a walk out as much as it's I don't think any of them are gold mines I should say. The third space has started to be produce and what I'm starting to see as, you know, jackfruit, tofu and, you know, even cauliflower based center of plate options hit produce is we're starting to see too much duplication. I think the biggest piece of advice I have is any three of those could be a gold mine if they connect with consumers, but too few times does a retail buyer in each of those spaces go and look and shop the other space. What I've found, especially when we hit the item count maximum last year in refrigerated, the same items were being carried and frozen, sometimes by the same brands and the same varieties, just one was frozen and one was refrigerated. And then produce had a lot of the competing areas. I think we have to learn to get to this consumer and meet their needs, regardless of temp state. What do you think, Marie? You've talked a lot more with consumers. So what do you think they want? Well, and
1: one of my other categories that I look at quite extensively is actually the frozen food department. And what I found so interesting about when you look at who is that core plant-based meat alternative shopper, and it's, it's a little bit difficult because you mentioned of the people who buy them, nearly half only buy them once. So when you look at demographics, they create a lot of noise in the numbers because they might have just bought something because they had people visiting or they wanted to be inclusive in a party or they just were curious to try it themselves, but haven't repurchased it. So when you truly look at the people who do have the repeat purchases, as you pointed out yesterday, it skews very young and it skews higher income. Now, when you look at the frozen uh, food department, which has been one of the strongest uh, across the entire store during the pandemic, who is the frozen core shopper? That's the older and younger millennial. Why is that? Because a lot of boomers have somewhat of a negative perception of frozen because they remember the TV dinner of old. Millennials recognize frozen for the uh, great innovation for the nutrition for the freshness and so that shopper is already in the frozen department anyway in addition to some of the numbers you shared point to a lower velocity and a lower household penetration so I I continue to harp on opportunity cost you know in the meat case we really have to be careful that every foot every skew um, is optimized. And to your point, uh, rather than meet two items, you know, make sure you're right sized and maybe that means you're under under um, skewed, maybe you're over skewed. Um, and I certainly think there is an interplay between frozen and fresh, but to your point, that can be complementary rather than overlapping assortment.
0: You know, you mentioned um, like make optimizing that space in the meat area, and I, I immediately think of butchers. You know, I, I think most people know that they can ask the butcher anything, but do people feel the same way about approaching a butcher about a plant-based meat alternative?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting Um, when you look at who wants a butcher there to ask questions. It is actually Gen X on up. It's, It's the older shoppers. They like to interact in person. And so a lot of millennials and Gen Z that come to the store tend to do their research prior to the trip. Um, and they're on all sorts of different podcasts and uh, TikTok. <laughs> at, at TikTok, Facebook groups, you name it. So not to say they don't interact with the people in the store, but they certainly often have a different frame of reference. Um, and so I, I don't think that's uh, that's probably a big uh, issue.
0: So we should encourage think- some of these meat based alternatives to get into TikTok and some of those tasty BuzzFeed videos that are quick, quick, quick. I think they're already there. Oh, sorry. I
2: think they're already there. I think that it really gets to be something to round this out. To come full circle on our point, as Anna Marie shared at the beginning, we've seen the rates of true vegan vegetarian in our surveys regardless. And we've also triangulated that data point across other sources. And we're seeing that relatively low. I think so much of plant-based eating is aspirational. And I think it is a badge of honor and a social currency for the younger consumer. And I mean that with myself included. I mean, it's really very much, you know, you're thinking about when you say, I want to eat more plant-based, there's a permissibility health-wise that you feel better about. And then there's also a social and environmental benefit that I think the younger consumer are really into But as, as someone said yesterday, you know, one of the great things about our webinar yesterday, and again, if you haven't seen it, it's on iriworldwide.com slash fresh foods. Is that the, uh, one of the consumers that we shared, she said, I've tried the meat alternatives at the store because I wanted to like them. It's exactly what it, it appealed to me, but I couldn't stand the smell and I didn't really like the taste. I think that the real true heart of this is it's not even so much about getting people to be aware of them. I think it's about the, experience of them. And that's why, again, I think that this is a space that I don't want to see go away. It has a place, but like so many other things, you know, what spring to my mind is breakfast bars and power bars, right? Those several years ago, the only people that eat them are heavy weight with weightlifters, right? We needed yummy flavors and new sizes and craveable brands and excellent halo effect. To make them be the average American's choice for breakfast. That is where I think the meat alternative is going. You know, people only eat so many burgers and sausages without seasoning in a year. (laughs) And yet that's really the option that we're giving them today. There's an infinite amount of meals and variety that is really just waiting to be discovered on the shelf. I think we had to grow to learn we're going to scale back a little bit. And then I think there is more coming out. And I really hope there is more coming out. You know, deli and the refrigerated space of meals is a, a huge opportunity for plant based. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of room, but not just to, you know, throw it on TikTok and make people think they're going to run and get it because we've had a lot of trial and not a lot of repeat.
0: Yeah. I think you make a good point, particularly about like almost the recipe ready, you know, I like have it, have it kind of ready to go. So when I make my own pasta or, starch or whatever it happens to be, salad, there's something flavorful to add to it. What other barriers do you see, um, Anna Marie, in getting people, in getting some of that penetration that seems to be lacking or the repeat? Yeah,
1: it is very interesting. Uh, We did see an increase in the number of pounds that were promoted. So what we mean by that is there just were more items on sale and that's often... Uh, to create trials so people of course it has a little bit of a higher price point typically you get two patties for around eight dollars whereas you can get a whole pound of hamburger meat for you know five dollars or so depending on on your weapon of choice there but um, so we see more promotions Uh, I've also seen it more more just sort of uh, events in store the issue with that is during COVID a lot of those events fell away Uh, But I think from a marketing perspective, one of you two just said it, there is great awareness, uh, but it really comes down to what is the experience I have with it? uh, Because obviously only a good experience is going to drive new trial. And the other thing is, too, a lot of people say, well, for an everyday for my family, that's one thing, but I wouldn't serve it for a party or Christmas dinner sort of thing. Um, so that really, you know, creates a very different viewpoint. And as I mentioned on uh, the webinar too, we have to keep in mind that in meat, we think about volume, we talk about pounds. Well, that's not the way this product works. You know, it's a small package, it's a niche offering and in size, it's really not a whole lot different than organic grass-fed beef. Um, So that's, I think, how we have to see it. This is not going to conquer the entire world, um, but it has a place and it has growth.
2: I think one of the other big, absolutely everything you just said, and I'd say the last barrier is to that experience would also be the inclusions and the nutritionals right? And if you look at the frozen space, there's such variety in the ingredients that go into those patties, sausages, and grinds. And again, I know the challenges of temperature state and supply chain, but when we walk to the refrigerated case, so much has been turned over to the true alternative as opposed to the hybrid or the veg forward blend And I think that there's, you know, we could take a clue from the fact that the frozen case has been around. And a lot of that innovation extension is about the inclusions of the nutritionals. This is a diet and a way of eating that is here to stay, but there's so much more room to make it more resonating with consumers to get those pounds and those turns going.
0: Yeah. Now, you did mention, um, Anna Marie, that, you know, this is a pricier product. Um, So I would imagine that it, it wouldn't be for large households. um, And it would definitely be for more affluent people. Is there, you know, again, maybe something in frozen in with more of these recipe ready, that could bring that cost down or make it more um, approachable to larger households? I think
1: uh, all the big players in the plant-based meat alternative space have recognized that their price per pound, to use that as a, uh, a, a good measuring uh, point against meat, uh, they've all recognized that they're higher and they've all indicated that within X many years, that number depends a little bit by brand, but many have um, already indicated that they are working on bringing that down. Um, in order to have scale and then be able to offer it. And I believe the ultimate goal for many is to get uh, around the price, the price of, of a ground beef um, kind of price point, whether or not that is feasible. Uh, I, I have no idea about that, but certainly there's recognition in the marketplace about
0: that. You know, so one more thing that I want to talk about before we close out, and that is, chana um, you kind of started this when in one of your first statements, and that was talking about forward, you know, that we're not going strictly to vegetarian or vegan. Um, but people want to incorporate more plants into their diet. So that would be around blends. Um, I've been a fan of like the, the mushroom blend. Um, that's been out for quite a while, it seems to be getting a little more traction over the years. But what about different opportunities by combining some of these plant based with animal proteins? John, yeah, about that.
2: You know, again, it's, we've tried measuring what we're calling hybrids or blends. And it's funny how for how much it makes perfect sense. And when you triangulate all the consumer data, how few we're seeing hit shelf, especially in traditional grocery and mass and supermarket or super center, I should say. But I don't know if the, you know, again, it's, it's, feasibly tough, but if we figured out how to make alternatives that look and taste like beef, I'm sure we could figure out how to make mix in veggies. But the concept of hidden hidden veggies and veggie forward really does drive the frozen space. There are some really strong notable brands that are very much about mixing in flavors like risotto and and cauliflower. And you know the whole cauliflower as an ingredient as a sub out has been huge in the frozen space and we're seeing, you know, those items hit produce as well. So I think there's such an amazing way to look at recipes and flavors first, and then the meat second. But that kind of simple change could really have staying power. And I think it's also the permissibility of it. One of the most important facts that we haven't yet said on this podcast that we would be remiss if we didn't include is that there is in the same basket a 5 to six times more likelihood that someone who's buying a plant-based meat alternative in that same trip is buying a chicken breast, a turkey. And there's even a two times likelihood that in that same trip, they're also buying beef. So again, these aren't shoppers who live in a silo. They might be buying the alternative for them or their, you know, animal protein for another in the household. We saw really strong demographics for alternatives with those who have teens in the home. And again, you've got multiple eaters. So why not please the whole family and give them something that pleases everyone as opposed to making them choose two different things. So I think there's tons of room with blends. We haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg yet. Have you seen really cool things out at shelf, Anna Marie? I know you talk with the industry so much.
1: Yeah. um, You know, it's really interesting because when you look at the survey results, there's actually much greater cross-population interest for items that blend meat with vegetables than than plant-based meat alternatives. Why is that? Well, uh, a quick geek note here, the closer you can bring to something that people are comfortable with, the, the, the smaller that leap and the more people will take that leap. There's fancy words for that, but that's the easiest way to explain it. So if you just take a regular burger and you take a little bit burger out and you put a little bit of mushrooms, Joan, you mentioned that it's very popular, carrots, tomatoes, uh, different kales, what have you. You're still eating a burger, so you haven't made that entire leap to something plant-based. So there is big cross-population appeal, and I'm not really sure why we're not seeing as much innovation in blends than we do. Internationally, absolutely. Uh, we see a lot of innovation in blends in Australia, in England, in, in the mainland Europe. And a lot of them position it as something where you can have hidden veggies for the kids. They will never know that they ate uh, a whole serving of carrots or a whole serving of kale or mushrooms, what have you. Um, So there's absolutely, I think, opportunity. And actually talking about the mushroom burger, we actually see that um, it rates more favorably. From a flavor perspective, and that to me is very interesting because it's moisture. It's uh, people see it as healthier, more sustainable, and uh, I, I think this is going to be a big area of innovation going forward.
0: Nice. Um, so I want to just recap a couple of the of the thoughts that I gleaned from this quick conversation today, and that is that we are seeing. Um, Maybe higher sales of in the from the refrigerated meat space, um, but there isn't much differentiation in terms of products from store to store. And frankly, you know, in in your head, like there's more than is really needed. So mind that valuable real estate um, by providing just the right amount and some differentiation. Um, plant-based products come with some social currency, especially in younger consumers with things like health, social, and environmental benefits. Um, But price is one of the barriers, and that personal experience that consumers have with plant-based alternatives is really important. And variety is another one, um, as as mentioned. Um, Inclusions and nutritionals that we're seeing in frozen are really not there in the refrigerated case, so that's another area of opportunity. We talked a little bit about hybrids and blends, um, and we're not seeing a a tremendous amount of that in traditional grocery, but definitely those hidden veggies have made a mark in frozen. Um, Jonna, you use the cauliflower example as a swap out. And your recommendation is to look at the recipes and flavors first and then see what can fit with those. Um, for people who are buying plant-based alternatives, more often than not, they're also buying animal protein. Um, And we know that from research that 210 Analytics did, that consumers are more likely to want vegetables included in their meat versus strictly the plant-based. So we need more innovation, frankly. Um, Other countries are doing it, so come on, CPG here in the U.S., let's get going. And with that, I want to thank you both for your time today, and I know we'll be talking again soon. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please become a subscriber and let us know what you want to learn more about. We'll serve it up in a future IRI Growth Insights episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review IRI Growth Insights. Also, visit us on the web at iriworldwide.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.